Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and my guest again today is Oliver Soden, author of a brand new book called Masquerade, The Lives of Noel Coward. Today, in the second part of our conversation, Oliver relates how Noel Coward, while still in his early 20s, emerged as one of the signature voices of the 1920s, both in London and on Broadway. If you missed part one of our conversation, you may want to catch up with that before listening to this one. Broadway Nation is made possible in part through the generous support of our patron club members. If you would like to help support the creation of this podcast, I'll have information at the end of the episode about how you too can become a patron. Here we go. So at the end of World War I, after Noel recovers from this breakdown, he jumps into writing with a fervor that is really amazing, the output that he creates, and then holds on to waiting for production. So when he finally does start to get produced, he's got all these plays in his back pocket, so to speak. Exactly. He goes on holiday at the end of the war to Cornwall with a group of young people who are all talking to one another. What do you want to be when you grow up? A doctor, a fireman, a solicitor. What do you want to be, Noel? And he answers a success. And he almost doesn't mind how he is successful. Successful, whether as an actor, a playwright, a songwriter. So he just throws everything at the wall to see what might stick. And he goes to his desk at 9am every morning for the best part of two years and he teaches himself how to be brilliant. And then he tells everybody that brilliance arrived like a sort of divine grace upon him and that he'd tried his hand at two plays and come the third one, he'd already written a mature masterpiece. This wasn't the case at all. And this was one of the archival revelations when I was researching my book, that there were some 40 notebooks where you can trace him in pencil, by hand, 
teaching himself to be Noel Coward, the great playwright. And he wrote 38, 40 plays in that period, none of which are any good. But it teaches him the discipline of theatrical craftsmanship and playwriting architecture. And that's when eventually he writes a play called I'll Leave It to You, which is done in the West End when he's 21. It's not a brilliant play, but it's frothy and light and charming and well put together. And he is so young that his father has to sign his contract. It isn't a huge success, and nor is his second play, The Young Idea. But then he does his first review, London Calling, it was called, which is when the Noel Coward that we know starts to appear. This is so interesting because he is so famous and so much of his legend revolves around the fact that he was able to write a play in a few days. Private Lives was written in two days on an ocean liner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the famous line is that he wrote Hay Fever, his early comedy about a theatrical family, in a couple of days. Well, there are some sketches for it, 1923, then he begins writing it properly, 1924, and it's all dated, his progress, and it's many months of careful revision and careful work. And it's all about separating the self-confected legend from the reality when charting this progress. Although Private Lives, I believe he did write in about four days in a hotel when he had flu. But in order to get to that point, also writing things for Noel Coward is a very different thing to writing them down. And I think a lot Mm -hmm. of the drafting happens in his head over a long and careful and thoughtful period of time. And then it all comes down on paper. But that's just the duck on the surface of the lake and the paddling legs have been going and going and going for a long, long time. Of course, because that's how plays are made. That's how art is made. It's hard, hard work, but it makes a great story to tell the interviewers. Oh, yeah, of course, of course. I was especially interested in this early trip that he takes to New York. What he learns there, what he experiences there and gleans from that trip seems to be really crucial in terms of positioning him for the success he's going to have when he returns to London. Yeah. I mean, you have to remember that London in the 1920s, although we have an idea of young women in flapper outfits and it all being very hedonistic, it's a war-tired capital at the beginning of the decade in the way that America simply isn't. So the 20s begin to roar rather earlier in America than in England. They roar earlier in Chicago than in New York. And Noel Coward doesn't visit Chicago until 1925. But he gets to New York and to Broadway in 1921 before he is at all well known. Something in him realises he has to do this. And he saves up enough money to blag his way onto an ocean liner and spends a week at sea and arrives at New York. He puts an advert in the New York Times saying he's coming. He expects it to greet him with open arms. He expects all the impresarios and producers of Broadway to buy all his plays. And of course they don't. And he leaves New York a couple of months months later, without having become the star he thought he might be, and Broadway still hasn't heard of him, and none of his plays have been taken. But he has met the right people. He has met American actors like Alfred Lunt and Lynn Fontaine, who go on to become one of the most famous husband and wife acting duos in American theatre. He meets Dorothy Parker at the round table at the Algonquin Hotel. He bulges his address book with the right contacts. And most of all, he sees Broadway, and he hears America, and he hears the noise of the construction work on the skyscrapers and he goes to speakeasies and smells the illegal moonshine and hears jazz in Harlem and he picks up with his musical ear the sound of the jazz age and of this new dawn of modernity. He hears the motor cars in the street and most of all it's an issue of tempo. He sees American actors not standing and delivering in mellifluous matinee
impersonate idle bluster in the way a Victorian trained leading actors in the West End are doing. He sees people like Lynn Fontaine cutting off the other actors at the end of the line, toying with the rhythm and the punctuation and going hell for leather. And he writes to his mother, the speed, wait till I get back to Broadway. And he turns up in the West End with this new idea of how to deliver dialogue, which is more realistic and it is faster. And the famous thing that was said about Coward is that he took the fat off British dialogue, and he did, British theatrical dialogue. But he was also a sort of metronome to which it began beating time. And his metronome is set so much faster than anybody else. So he brings American syncopated energy back with him into London. And that is really important for what he then goes on to do. I think that is fascinating. And I'm not sure that the American influence on Noel Coward has been traced nearly as well prior to this. Between meeting George S. Kaufman and listening to jazz in Harlem, all of those experiences which you mentioned, he clearly had an ability to absorb those things. Yeah. You mentioned George Kaufman. Kaufman and the playwright Hartley Manners, you know, these were people who were A, taking over Broadway, but B, excellent at self-image. You know, they wouldn't be seen in public without a cane and a gown. And I think Coward picks up something from that New York way of life, that confection of one's own myth. I'm not necessarily saying that he owes a literary debt to the American playwright. It's something more than that. It's a capturing of atmosphere. So, for example, he goes to a party very early and hears George Gershwin's archetypally brilliant composition Rhapsody in Blue, which is the sort of sound of the jazz age. He hears it played by Gershwin. Played by Gershwin actually at a party and he also hears Gershwin's piano concerto before it's completed. He hears it as a work in progress. So this is American symphonic jazz and he brings that back to London too. And one of the things that has not been made enough of is that when Coward eventually puts on his own play The Vortex, which he starred in as the lead role. He played great chunks of Rhapsody in Blue at the piano that he had picked up by ear. I mean, the score was not available. And this was before Rhapsody in Blue had had its British premiere. So he was actually giving, admittedly in exerted form, the British premiere of Rhapsody in Blue. So he becomes a figure who is a sort of vessel for this new sound of the jazz age. Cole Porter too, maybe we'll talk of him later on. But he's hearing this stuff earlier than so many of his British contemporaries. And just to add to the amazement, this is a man who does not fully read music. Or does or... not read music at all. I mean, I think you're being generous. <laughs> or more to the point, he cannot write it down. He's one of those players who plays by ear. He'd had two or three private lessons and walked out because he couldn't do musicological technique. He played by ear. And I think this actually opened him up as a composer because he didn't need to master the mechanics of each genre in which he wrote, whether it was jazz or operetta or Gilbert and Sullivan or the blues. He could just imbibe it like a sponge and then work with a series of amanuenses who would then take dictation from him and harmonize and orchestrate, which is astonishing. And I mean, it's interesting that the great parallel figure is someone such as Cole Porter, who also wrote music and lyrics, or in England, Ivor Novello, who reached success much earlier than Coward did. But both Novello and Porter are classically trained. And in um, Porter's case, university educated, inherited wealth in Porter's 
case and so on. Coward is a very, very different kettle of fish. Coward is not someone who would have been taught by the classical composer Koeschler or want to collaborate with Stravinsky, although Stravinsky did ask Coward to collaborate with him, but Coward turned him down, whereas Porter and Stravinsky did have a sort of skirmish. It's a very, very different thing with Coward to somebody who is ostensibly similar, such as Porter. Again, he's a bit more like an American songwriter of this period, with the exception of Porter, of course many of whom came from the streets, from working-class backgrounds. Many of them didn't go past the eighth grade and learned to play by ear. What makes Coward so interesting is that he then becomes a collision point. So he brings jazz and blues and a sort of American energy back, pushes those things into his British inheritance, the more romantic ardour of Ivan Avello, the patter songs of Gilbert and Sullivan. And the sparks fly when those tectonic plates collide. He wasn't the only one to be doing things such as that. For example, someone like Philip Braham or Brahm, I don't know how he pronounces it, who writes a song called Limehouse Blues. So Limehouse is London, Blues is America, and you have this sort of combination of the two worlds. But Coward is the one really who begins to disseminate blues into the country through songs like 20th Century Blues. Blues, 20th Century Blues They're getting me down God in the sky, why shouldn't he grin high above this dreaded 20th century din? In this strange illusion, chaos and confusion, people seem to lose their way. What is there to strive for, love or keep alive for? Say, hey, hey! Day. Lose nothing to win or to lose. It's getting me down, down. Lose, escape these weary 20th century And do we know specifics about his interactions with black music in New York or in London eventually? I don't know about specifics. I do know that he is there during the Harlem Renaissance. He hears the music of the Harlem Renaissance. And of course, the difficulty here is that, as with many of his time, he could write about this music with, at best, disdain and at worst, racism, while nevertheless taking from that world what he wanted to take. He was porous, musically speaking. And actually, I think his record, when it comes to working with black musicians from those worlds in America, is actually pretty good. So I'm thinking of the singer Alberta Hunter, who recorded Coward's song Mad About the Boy, very early, I think in the early 1930s. There was a black Olympic sportsman who also worked as a pianist, I think called Jack London, whom Coward worked with on the musical Cavalcade or the pageant Cavalcade. He was also friends with Paul Robeson, the black opera singer who was married to Essie Robeson, with whom Coward used to dance at the Savoy to the shock and upset of all those present. But it's a great and very admirable gesture. In fact, there's been a speculation that the two of them might have had an 
fair, although I don't personally think that is true. But if you can get beyond his use of the vocabulary of the time, actually his welcome and his openness to black music, if that isn't a sort of crude term to use, because there are many types of black musics of the 20s, is, I think, rather admirable and astonishing. I believe he was the first white performer to play at a charity fundraiser for the NAACP, which is the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, as the phrase then was. He is aware of that music, and he does, I think, use it and work with black musicians to the benefit of his own musical voice. Let's talk about London Calling, because as you say, this becomes sort of a calling card for him. It's sort of his initial emergence into prominence, I guess you could say. Yes, it's the first review. He wasn't solely responsible for it. It was a collaboration. He contributed. He sort of changed that in hindsight, really. But he contributed some songs and sketches. And because he was so young and because he performed in it himself, it wasn't a smash hit, but it made enough of a stir. And like most reviews of the period, this would be a collection of songs by various writers and of sketches by various writers. Exactly. But what is clever, and he does this more pronounced in later reviews of the decade is that he's sort of hauling the form, that frothy jumble of things, whether it's acrobats or ballet dancers or songs or sketches or duets or whatever, into the 1920s and he streamlines it and he tightens it and he makes it sharper and more satirical. And he's one of the first people, if not the first, to introduce a much more acid wit. So review in Coward's hands becomes much less cosy. London Calling is the only review he did with a theatrical producer called André Charlot, who was the French impresario who really introduces the form of review, which is French in origin, to London. And Charlot's reviews are subtler and on a lower budget than the later reviews Coward goes on to work on, which are produced by a man called Charles Cochrane, who was a no-expense-spared, lavish spectacle sort of producer, who when they said that the set didn't work because it was too high, his first thought wasn't to shrink the set but to take the roof off the theatre. I mean, he <laughs> he worked like that, whereas Charlot was more intimate and almost more stylish. So London Calling, which takes its title from a very modern thing, the introduction of radio, it's what you heard on British radio, you know, this is London calling. Even the title announced that this was going to be something new. It wasn't Edwardian musical comedy. And it's important because it's the first time he works as an adult with Gertrude Lawrence. It's important because it's the review for which he writes his first hit song, which is Parisian Piero, which some of the listeners will know, and which oddly goes against what I'm saying about the American influence, because in a way it belongs more to the cabaret scene of Weimar Germany and Paris, where he's also travelled. But it's a hit, and Gertrude Lawrence sings it. He'd go into restaurants and hear it playing. Parisian hero, society's hero, the lord of our days, the rude Lafay, is under your sway. Divinely forlorn With exquisite scorn 
also created a character called Hermia Whittlebot, who was a sort of pretty savage parody of the modernist poet Edith Sitwell, which causes its own little scandal because Sitwell is so upset. But this, of course, gives to Review a real feeling of being current and ironic and witty and satirical. It gives it life. There was a Broadway version of this show as well called the Andre Charlo Review of 1924. Yes, it went over to New York and it made a star of Gertrude Lawrence, which was its importance and significance. But Coward himself, all the parts and songs that Coward had performed for the first part of the run in the West End were taken over by somebody else who had a much better success than Coward ever managed with his own material, which made it a bit sort of sour triumph for Coward. But it doesn't make Coward a star in America. That takes another two years, which is interesting. And it's not really until Coward sort of breaks ties with André Charlot and moves to work with Cochrane on a much more spectacular review called On With The Dance in 1925, that Coward as the review artist really becomes a sensation in America and in England as a creator of review. But in the meantime, he becomes a sensation as an actor and as a playwright with his play The Vortex. Yes. This is a play he'd already written about a young man called Nicky, who may be gay, who is certainly drug addicted, who has an erotically intense relationship with his mother, so far so autobiographical, apart from the drugs, because Coward, much as he pretended to be a hedonist, was actually a Puritan who occasionally got a bit drunk, but that was about it. This play is one of the first to show to London audiences, when it's staged in a small theatre in North London at the end of 1924, the new lingo and behaviour of the young, the new set of high society who are partying the night away and taking drugs. And although not everybody thinks it's a masterful play, everybody is shocked, outraged, thrilled by it. And six months later, Coward has four shows running simultaneously in the West End at the age of 25, and is thought to be one of the most famous men in the country, just from that cause celebre of the vortex. I mean, amazing. The achievement of that or the effect of that is staggering just to think about. Yes. The cliche, of course, is an overnight sensation, but in this case, it really is. It is. And of course, the interesting thing is working out why. Because the play was not shocking for being about drugs, because there were plenty of plays about drugs on in the West End in the 1920s. In fact, it had become a bit of a cliche. It wasn't even all that shocking for hinting at the fact that the lead character was bisexual, because 20s theatre, for all that there were greatly Puritan, reactionary, homophobic attacks on gay men and so on in the 20s, there was a streak of 1920s life that was becoming increasingly permissive. Chicago had a gay rights organisation at the time, and it was amazing what people could get away with on the stage, even more so in America, where the censorship was not as intense as it was in London. But how did Coward do it? I think with the sort of febrile intensity of his performance, which was meant to be rather astonishing as he whipped himself into a frenzy every night playing this highly strung, neurotic young man 
man. And I think by dint of somehow tuning in to what the younger generation of the 20s were like, I mean, people often ask me for an equivalent. And the best I can come up with, I don't know if you've seen it, is that wonderful comedy series, but more than comic, called Fleabag. Absolutely. Which I know is big in America too, written by and starring Phoebe Waller-Bridge as a brilliant, neurotic, unhappy young woman living her life in today's world and navigating it. And that is, I think, quite a neat parallel because what Phoebe Waller-Bridge has done is to tune into her own generation and show them and show older generations who she is and what it is like. It's struck a chord, and rightly so. The part of Fleabag is a vehicle for herself to play, and that is very Noel Coward somehow. I think that is what Coward did. He caught and created a generation and then proved very, very adept at advertising his own work and harnessed the media. And that was a new word for the 1920s used in its modern sense of television and radio and publicity to the extent that they confused creator and creation. And he would give interviews views pretending to be a drug-addled young man, which was far from the truth, but which nevertheless meant that the vortex could run and run on a wave of attention and activity and publicity. And he was very good at doing that. He becomes one of the first branded media stars, as we might think of them today. Yes, you would buy a programme or a playbill for one of his early plays, and there he would be advertising a new watch or a new typewriter. Very clever. And of course, the 20s is almost a new era of celebrity. It's the first era where the private life of its celebrities is, you know, the print media is exploding in popularity, radio interviews, wireless interviews. Information is travelling faster. It's another form of relevance to today. It was the age of social media, just in a different technological form. And he does all that well. He knows how to do that through advertising, through sponsorship, through harnessing changing attitudes to masculinity, changing attitudes as to what was attractive. The Victorian ideal of the brawny male was going out of the window. Male stars had to be thinner because the movie camera put a lot of weight on, so they shrunk in consequence. Fashion. Coward could cause a sensation turning up to a party in a polo neck jumper, and he knew he was going to cause a sensation. And he harnesses all these worlds of fashion, of film. I don't mean he was successful in film, but he knows what the effects will be of the movie camera and how that will change ideas of masculinity, androgyny, sexuality, gender, the blurring of the boundaries between everything. Um, He gets it. So this is all intuitive and intentional. Yeah, I think so. Don't go away. Oliver and I will be back with more conversation right after this quick break. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week. 
so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make everyday delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So what are those four shows that now make him one of the most famous people in the UK? The Vortex transfers to the West End. There's a light comedy about women getting drunk to women who have shared an ex-lover called Fallen Angels, which is thought so scandalous that women from the Society for the Prevention of Vice shout and heckle through some of the performances. That wonderful comedy, Hay Fever, which is not brilliantly reviewed, but is very successful. And there is his second review, which is entirely his own work as writer of sketches, lyricist and composer. And that review is called On With The Dance. Again, you illuminate these reviews so brilliantly in your book. What would we see if we could go back in time to see that show in person? You wouldn't see Coward performing, but you would already start to see a sort of house style of a Coward and Charles Cochrane review, which meant lots of young ladies in ball gowns, Mr. Cochrane's young ladies, they were called. It meant very, very witty sketches, and it meant amazing set designs. I mean, each sketch of this review was worked on by a separate production team, including Cladis Calthrop, who was one of Coward's closest friends and in his inner circle, and who designed almost all of his productions and the 1950s. It meant lavish costumes. It meant ballets that were choreographed and danced by Leonid Massine, who had danced with the Ballet Russe and worked with Yagilev. And, you know, again, Coward the modernist. Here he is tapping in to a world that I associate in my head with Picasso and Stravinsky. So these wonderful ballets scored to sort of not all composed by Coward, some of them are Irving Berlin, but scored to sort of sleazy, noisy, wailing orchestral melodies of jazz songs. There was a saxophone quartet in the orchestra pit. So it's a new sound for review. There were some paintings made of the production that were then called the encapsulation of Art Deco. And you can see these sort of jagged, almost vorticist angles and costumes. It was a new world. And one of the songs that Coward fans will know is Poor Little Rich Girl. Poor Little Rich Girl, don't drop a stitch too soon. Poor Little Rich Girl, you're a bewitched girl, better take care. Laughing at danger, virtuous stranger, better beware. 
life you lead sets all your nerves a-jangle. Your love affairs are in a hopeless tangle. Though you're a child, dear, your life's a wild typhoon. Although Cochrane didn't like it, that became one of the hits of the evening. And that is interesting because already Coward is starting to see that the archetypal young women of the upper crust of society in the 1920s, promiscuous, drug-taking, he's already starting to see that this is going to be dangerous and impermanent and is not going to last. And Poor Little Rich Girl, like a lot of Coward's songs from the 1920s and from the reviews, is really a warning as what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And Poor Little Rich Girl is actually sung not by the rich girl, but by her maid as a sort of prophecy and an admonishment and, uh, as I say, a warning. In lives of leisure, the craze for pleasure steadily grows. Cocktails and laughter, but what comes after, nobody knows. You're weaving love into a mad jazz pattern, ruled by pantaloons. Fascinating. He then, a year later, repeats most of these shows on Broadway. Yes, the vortex transfers. I mean, the New York Times called it meretricious, but that didn't matter because the scandal and the melodrama in a city that, as I say, the drug taking is spiced by prohibition. It seems even more scandalous to an American audience. And the quip was always that the curtain calls at the end of the vortex. And it's worth saying that in England at the time, curtain calls were taken at the end of each act. Amazing to think of now. And in New York, they weren't. They'd done away with this, which meant that the tension of a play such as The Vortex went unbroken until the final applause at the end of these three highly wrought acts, and they go wild. And the noise was meant to be such that a cast of a production seven blocks away came out for another bow, thinking that the applause was in their (laughs) own theatre. But it's, I mean, not everything Coward took over to America was a success. And the tour of The Vortex was not a success, but he is now known to Broadway audiences, which was what was important. And to be clear, he acted in it on Broadway as well. Exactly, which was important because John Gielgud took over in London, but Coward's own performance in that was important for its success. You call the play Easy Virtue a trumpet blast which announced Noel himself as a modern writer. Yeah. Talk more about that. Easy Virtue isn't done a lot now, but it's an important play. And it's a twist on what were called women with a past plays, which had been written by figures such as Oscar Wilde and Arthur Pinero, Mrs. Tanqueray, Lady Windermere, Mrs. Early. These are all the characters who had some form of scandal in their past and were censured by society. And in some of them, at the end of the play, they commit suicide. They have illegitimate children or they've had affairs or whatever. And Easy Virtue is a woman with a past called Loretta Whitaker. And what is modern about it is that instead of criticising this past, Coward embraces the sexuality 
and the enjoyment of sex of the modern woman. And it shows Lorita marrying a British aristocrat, or at least a British member of the upper class, visiting him in his family home and being stultified and stifled by the sheer reactionary, life-denying puritanism of British society. And it is modern because it disdains marriage, it disdains monogamy, and it shows a scandalous divorcee with great sympathy, walking out on her husband in order to be enjoying her life of promiscuous and brief affairs rather than settling down into marriage, wifehood. And this at a time where women are slowly crawling towards equal rights, access to the contraceptive pill, access to the voting booth. And that, to me, I think makes him a great chronicler of women, a great chronicler of the liberations of his age and the social activity of his age, and a modern writer twisting old forms into new shapes. Your description certainly made me want to see that play today and have somebody try to, which I'm sure would be difficult, to bring forth those values from our viewpoint today. Yeah, I mean, in some way, like all works of sort of social commentary, it stays within its own time. And yet, when I read Easy Virtue, I still think there are aspects of our society or sections of it who would remain shocked by a woman putting aside motherhood, wifehood, domesticity in order to, you know, I'm not sure I could fully say that the attitudes that Easy Virtue's pillories are entirely gone from our society, which does make it continuingly relevant. Absolutely. I was especially captivated with your descriptions of Noel interacting with the rising New York theatrical stars of the day. Yeah. You tell us about a party where Noel is performing Poor Little Rich Girl and then giving up the piano to George Gershwin, who sits down and plays his in-progress piano concerto. Amazing. Um, And these party lists, you look up Coward Noel in the index of almost any biography of a person in 20th century entertainment or even politics. And there he is, meeting Charlie Chaplin, partying in Venice with Cole Porter and Hammerstein and Lawrence Hart and all the great figures in musical theatre and in the theatre in America and in England and learning from them and teaching them. And that's important, this to and fro. He's part of that American musical scene. And yet what is interesting is that musically in the 20s, he's more interested in reviving Viennese operetta than he is in writing a big brash Broadway musical. And that comes really later in his career. And it was on this trip to New York that he meets Jack Wilson, certainly one of the most important and significant figures in his life. Yeah. And I think you say it is the first relationship in Noel's life that can conclusively be called a love affair. Yeah, I don't speak for Jack Wilson, of whom not that much survives as far as letters and diaries and so on. But Coward fell, and fall is the word, catastrophically in love with Jack Wilson. And when Coward fell in love, he he became hot-blooded and often unhappy, as his plays reveal, because it was not a happy or healthy relationship. Jack Wilson was a theatre producer whom Coward helped to get work. He was shiny with American wit and American energy, but he was an alcoholic. He was not faithful. He would make passes at other people in Noel's circle. He would become aggressive when rejected. The relationship, in the end, has a long and ragged tale before it finally ends, as with 
so many of Coward's relationships. So it's a traumatic period of his life. I mean, all the way through all these great successes and failures of the 20s, Coward is forever having nervous breakdowns and being injected with strychnine by doctors because strychnine at the time is thought to calm the nervous system and is having to go and recuperate on Hawaii or so on and so forth. And Jack is sort of around at that time to a level that is both thrilling and damaging for Coward. I'm fascinated by Jack Wilson because he has this major theatrical career with and without Coward. Yeah. And yet we generally don't hear very much about him. Well, no. And of course, he's a footnote or more than a footnote, but he's a a line in the index of biographies of Coward. A memoir has now been found and published about his, not about his personal life, but about his theatrical career, which with Coward's help did go on to be starring. And he worked on some of the big shows. I think Kiss Me Kate was one that he worked on. Yes, he directed Kiss Me Kate. And then, of course, he begins to work on plays by some of Coward's rivals, like Terence Rattigan, and take that off to Broadway. And whenever he works on a Coward production, it's not quite so successful eventually. But he is a very important figure in Coward's life. Another fascinating tidbit that you share is the two of them at Cole and Linda Porter's Palazzo in Venice at this fabulous party with Richard Rogers and Larry Hart. And I'm always fascinated by the interconnectedness between these Broadway writers. Yes. And Coward knew them all, you know. He'd had a board musical very early with Jerome Kern. He loved Irving Berlin. As you say, he's sharing the piano in the Venice Palazzo with Cole Porter, with people, Hammerstein, Hart, everybody, Rogers, Richard Rogers. And that is important to his musical voice, certainly, even when he diverges as well as when he imitates. Because I think he is a great imitator of others. I mean, it's not to deny his originality, but I think in some ways, Coward musically is about pastiche. You know, he imbibes all these different things and then makes them his own. But it's to do with listening to what others are doing. Well, I think all of these great writers trade off and are inspired by one another. And as someone once said, you know, amateurs borrow and geniuses steal. Exactly so. I mean, it's worth noting as well that Cole Porter had a very, as I remember it, slow start. I don't think it's till the musical Paris in 1930, 28, that he really becomes a big hit. And of course, Coward has been a smash for three years before that. It's important to think of it that way round. Coward is actually out ahead of many of these big figures of the 1920s. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. I mean, I said earlier that the differences between Cole Porter and Coward are as important as the similarities. But nevertheless, that ability to do words and music, that dexterity and playfulness and innuendo in the lyrics, Cole Porter's use of the list, of course, very famously, and Coward rewriting, say, let's do it. There's a wonderful Coward version of let's do it. And they do remain friends right through, even after Cole Porter's horrendous accident when he is sort of disabled for life. And Coward is loyal to him and so on. And of course, they're both gay. And it's interesting that Cole marries with whom he has a sort of sexless but deeply felt and loving relationship. And Coward never does that, even when it might have been helpful. And that's another important difference. And then, of course, when you read about Cole Porter's sort of tortuous love affairs with, you know, young ballet dancers called Boris and so on, they have their unhappinesses and their abuses, we might say. And that is a shared thing with Coward, too. And with Larry Hart as well, there are similar stories between the three of them. Yeah, and this notion of love as a sort of rather dangerous enchantment is something I remember Cole Porter feeling and being susceptible to when reading about him. And it was dangerous for all three of them. Their whole worlds could come crashing down. 
Yes, of course. You know, how easy to forget and, and became more dangerous. I mean, when Cole Porter is sitting in the audience of Coward's American Cabaret in Las Vegas in the 1950s, it is more dangerous than it was in the 20s and 30s because it's the time of McCarthyite witch hunts and gay blackmail and so on. So it's this sort of zigzag of permissiveness and intolerance and that the worst part of the zag, so to speak. The danger is very real. I love the way you put that in your book, the zigzag of the decades. Yeah, because of course, Cole Porter and Coward are united in hiding this sexual world within double meaning, within the double entendres of their lyrics. That is the way they get away with it. And they get away with quite a great deal leading up to the Second World War. And it became arguably more dangerous to do that after the Second World War. It's not until the 60s, by which time Porter is, you know, ill and then dead, that Coward sort of returns in popularity. And that's interesting too. Absolutely. And going back to the connections between these great writers, you make a fascinating connection between Gershwin and Coward in regard to their songs Parisian Piro and Someone to Watch Over Me. Now, Someone to Watch Over Me is from OK, isn't it? The, yes. the, the Gershwin. So lyrics by his brother Ira and music by George and sung by Gertrude Lawrence, so Coward's great partner. And the song Parisian Piero Coward had written three years before Someone to Watch Over Me for Gertrude Lawrence to sing. And she sang it to a sort of 20-inch high Piero doll, one of the figures of Commedia dell'arte. And this was buying in to a vote in the 20s, where young women would carry around with them these things called boudoir dolls, you know, the archetypal bright young things. They would have dolls with them and they'd pet them and take them to restaurants and have them in their bedrooms and so on. It's this sort of infantilized world of the 1920s where grown women own dolls and the baby talk is very in fashion and so on. And Gertrude Lawrence, when singing Someone to Watch Over Me for Gershwin, sang it for the first time to a Raggedy Ann doll who would have been the American equivalent. And we know that Gershwin loved Coward's reviews. That must be a doth of the cat, because we know that there's a review, really the most successful Coward ever did, called This Year of Grace, 1928. So two years after, someone to watch over me. But there are diary entries, I think from Ira Gershwin, saying it's a great show for one man to do. I mean, I think George saw it twice. Coward's music is in the atmosphere that the Gershwins are breathing, and that is important. But I love that literal parallel between the two dolls. It's unexpected. Yes, it's very amazing to think of Gertrude Lawrence on stage singing the big song of each of these shows to a doll. It can't be a coincidence. No, and linking Coward and Gershwin in the public mind as two composers. So let's talk then about this year of grace. You just mentioned it, and the critics called it, at least one critic called it, the most brilliant and satisfying work I've ever seen. Yeah, it was sensational. Coward had had a big failure the year before with a play called Sirocco that had been greeted so badly there'd been a riot in the stalls. So this year of grace fixed everything. And again, by this time, people know what to expect. They know to expect the gorgeous gowns designed by the great designer Edward Molyneux. They knew to expect the Coward songs. They knew how it would be. And the number in this year of grace that absolutely fascinates me is a song that Coward fans will know, which is Dance, 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 Little Lady, Youth is Fleeting to the Rhythm Beating in Your Mind. Dance, 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 little lady, youth is fleeting to the rhythm beating in your mind. Dance, 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 little lady, so obsessed with circumvest, more best you 
One of my favourite of the Khaled songs because I think the lyrics are so exceptional. And we're back to this warning of the young 1920s girl that it can't last this way of life. And where in 1925 it was poor little rich girl don't drop a stitch too soon. In Dance Little Lady it's the same thing. It's a warning. You know, you're living in a world of lies. So obsessed with second best no rest you'll ever find. That's a skillful lyric. Sluicing in that sort of hiss of all the S sounds, the sibilance. Brilliant. When the saxophone gives the wicked moon Charlton, they have rhythm all and wide. Start dancing to the tune, the band's crooning for soon the night will be gone. Start swaying like a reed without heeding the speed that hurries you on. Syncopate your nerves till your body curves drooping, stooping, laughter someday dies. And when the lights are starting to gutter, dawn through the shutter, shows you're living in a world of lies. And the way it was staged began absolutely to fascinate me and really was a key for my whole book. It gave me the title, it gave me the way in, it gave me the imagery of the mask because the little lady is dancing and a singer called Sonny Hale, Coward himself sang this role when it went to America, but Sonny Hale did it in England, sang this song to the young dancer as warning, wearing a black dinner jacket that was made of a sort of celluloid. So it shone and was slippery and metallic under the light. And around the dancing little lady, a whole host of dancers sort of loomed from the blackness, being the bright young things of the 1920s, but wearing literal masks made of papier-mâché by an eminent designer and artist called Oliver Messel. And they are terrifying. I mean, they survive in the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. And they are frightening because they have large, drugged, dilated, vapid eyes and empty expressions. And I was there suddenly with this idea of the literal mask as well as the metaphorical one and how frightening and thrilling that song must have been to its first audiences and how it isn't just a song. You know, it was a 10-minute ballet, as modern in its way as the Rite of Spring and encapsulating its time to just the same degree. Dance, 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 little lady, youth is bleeding to the rhythm beating in your mind. Dance, 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 little lady, so obsessed with second best, no rest you'll ever find. Time and tide and trouble, never, never wait, let the corn bubble justify your fate. Dance, 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 little lady, dance, 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 little lady, and it was a great hit of the evening and fascinated me completely. And very avant-garde in its own way. Well, exactly. I mean, back to the point that this now is a young man, Noel Coward, who has worked with Leonid Massine from the Ballet Russe and who the following year, 19. 30, so the following year after the review's run ends, gets a letter from Igor Stravinsky saying, should we collaborate on something? 
and very interesting given his later conservatism and the perception of conservatism that he gives off. Yes, and I think that is to do with the fact, I mean, having mentioned Phoebe Waller-Bridge, we'll have to see what happens there. I wonder if it is impossible to speak for two generations in a row. If you are the epitome of the young in the 1920s, can you be, therefore, the spokesperson for the next generation without some generational clash? And in Coward's case, having been entirely in sympathy with all the journeys to liberation of his own generation in the interwar years, the sort of liberations that the young in the 1950s and 60s begin to care about, which is social welfare, the abandonment of the class system, decolonization, Mm -hmm. that really drives him up the wall because he doesn't believe in it. And that, I think, is almost a result of the fact that he had been so entirely bound up with the journeys to liberation and the social causes of his own world before the war. You talk about this show being a tug-of-war between the old and the new. Jazz ballets contrasted with Viennese waltzes and polkas. How does that represent, do you think, Coward in that moment? Well, I think it represents him very well in that I think of Coward as a sort of radical conservative who is very upended by change, but knows that it has to happen if things are going to stay the same. And there are always two sides of the coin. You know, he is entirely aware of the musical past, and he can pastiche that past and present it to you. And sometimes he is modern in order to show you how dangerous and frightening and awful modernity can be. So it's all about giving you things, whether it's the Viennese waltz at the turn of the century, or the entirely contemporary jazz world of the late 20s and early 30s, and yet he deconstructs them. He goes on to write an operetta called Bittersweet, which comes straight after this year of grace, and which is an effort to revive a form that he loved, which was the Viennese operetta of figures such as Franz Lehart. that you can't simply do a pastiche operetta 30 years on. So he presents you with, as it were, a commentary on itself. And it's that curious dichotomy in Coward whereby the romance of that musical world, of the Viennese waltz, is entirely 
genuine. Coward can be very romantic, but at the same time, he deconstructs romance. And by the end of Bittersweet, the great Viennese waltz that he wrote for it, as it were Viennese, I'll see you again, has curdled into jazz by the end. the past with a consciousness of his own nostalgia and he pitches the present with a clear-eyed view of its dangers at the same time. Bittersweet would be quite hard to revive today and might be thought sort of too saccharine to belong to anything other than its own era. It is an interesting, self-conscious work and a lot of the music in it is slightly in quotation marks. It belongs to the story, you know, which is told in flashback over a period of 30 or so years. And in that, you say it's similar to the construction of Showboat. Yes, and of course, he loved Jerome Kern. Showboat, as I remember, also has a sort of three-decade structure. And much as Kern disdained his own sort of Mittel-European background, I think that is there in the world of Kern as well, and it certainly is in Coward. So I like to think there's a curious sort of link there. How do the two shows relate in regard to years? Showboat is 1927. Showboat is 1927 and Coward is 1929. They're coming out of the same world. So Coward saw Showboat. Must have done. No doubt. Or or would have known it. And I think the novel it's based on is by Edna Ferber, whom he knew and would have known and would have read. So it it all fits. There are some remarkably modern and bold elements to this operetta. Yes. Most notably, perhaps, the Green Carnation song. Yes, the Green Carnation song, We All Wear a Green Carnation, is sung by a group of four young men in Bittersweet. It doesn't need to be there. It's quite interesting. And these are not central characters to the story. No, and it doesn't advance the story either, which is always meant to be the rule. And it is a parody of the aestheticism of the 1890s in England, which gave rise to Oscar Wilde and his followers, who wore a green carnation in their buttonhole as a symbol. Blasey boys are we, exquisitely free, from the dreary and quite absurd moral views of the common herd. We like porphyry bows, chandeliers and stoves. 
We're most spirited, carefully filleted. So. Well, and there was a novel called The Green Carnation that I think Coward, although it was banned, probably could have found his way towards reading. Pretty boys, witty boys, too, too, too lazy to fight stagnation. Haughty boys, naughty boys, all we do is to pursue sensation. The portals of society are always open wide. The world our eccentricity condones. A note of quaint variety we're certain to provide. We dress in very decorative clothes. Faded boys, jaded boys, womankind's gifts to a bold nation. In order to distinguish us from less enlightened minds, we'll all wear a green carnation. And Coward, we must remember, always pretended to dislike Oscar Wilde. In some ways, it's quite a savage parody of the silliness of that world. And we have to remember, it's, you know, it's, it's only a generation or two since Oscar Wilde was arrested. And in Coward's childhood, Wilde was only slowly clawing his way back towards being performed without the sort of taint of scandal. And for a gay man of Coward's generation, you know, there was some recrimination towards Wilde. There was a sense that this extrovert behaviour of his world wearing their green carnations had made life difficult for homosexuals of the next generation and had set back the cause. So this song, the men singing it, the very silly, haughty boys, naughty boys, you know, all of that. And it is amazing how the sexual meaning and the parody flew straight over the head of the censors in the West End Theatre, the Lord Chamberlain, and flew over the head of most of the audience. But what is interesting is that in the lyrics is a line tucked away we are the reason for the 90s being gay. And that is now in the Oxford English Dictionary as one of the very earliest public uses of the word gay, meaning homosexual. And that is coward under the guise of satire, changing the language that would be spoken. And more to the point, linking his world of homosexuality, if it is a world, with his world of wit and gaiety in its proper or at least original sense. I say in the book, sort of linking gayness sexually with gaiety emotionally. And he is one of the puppet masters behind that. And that link between, which can be made too crudely or at least stereotypically, I realise, between the world of camp and wit and the world of homosexuality is forged and stitched, not exclusively, but in a very important way by Noel Coward in that musical and in other plays, but particularly in that song. And what I'm puzzled by is just why did he choose to put this song into the show? He didn't have to put the song in the show. It wasn't required by the story or the plot. And it was a very dangerous thing to do. To do. And one admires the bravery. I mean, if it fits in the musical, it fits because Bittersweet is a sort of musical time travel. And mm -hmm. he did the same thing in a pageant called Cavalcade two years later. So it allows him to go through all the musical styles of the previous 30 years. So you get the Viennese Waltz, you get 1890s London, you get Edwardian musical comedy and then you get the jazz of the 1920s. So I see that it fits in musically 
and it allows him to have a dig at Wilde, and it allows him to tuck his daring, his theatrical daring, his sexual daring, like putting peas in mashed potato for children. I mean, it allows him to hide in plain sight, doesn't it? I suppose that's why he did it. But then I say in the book that Coward never hid in plain sight. He revealed himself through flagrant disguise. And we're back to what I was saying right at the beginning, that if you wear a mask and if you hide, that is where you can really tell the truth. And it's the disguise that allows him to be authentic. And of course, it was Oscar Wilde, thinking of 1890s aestheticism, who said in an essay called The Artist is Critic, if you give a man a mask, he will tell you the truth. I love that. The show was a giant success in London, in New York, made into a motion picture, revived multiple times within the next few decades. You said it would be very hard to revive today. Why has Bittersweet not lived on? Yes, this afflicts the early musicals of Ivan Novello too. I think it could be revived today. But it is, apart from a jazz number at the end, it is not a musical in the sense, you know, of its scoring. It does not have that American brasher sound of the big band to which audiences have become used, even audiences who prefer older musicals, the sort of Oklahoma-type musicals rather than Wicked or Hesper. Even that world sounds newer than the world of Bittersweet. And I think as a historical curiosity, it would be very interesting. But if you hear the recording, it is hard not to find it irreparably dated because of its recreation of the world of Edwardian musical theatre and 1890s operetta. And yet, of course, some of the original operettas, like The Merry Widow, The Leha, that is done and admired, and bits of Corn Gold as well, another composer of operetta. And yet, because The Coward is pastiche rather than original, I do think it makes it tricky. And there is something relatively saccharine about the story. What is interesting is that one or two songs have survived not only I'll See You Again, the great waltz from it, but a great song that he's done a lot called If Love Were All, which in context is sung by not the main character, but a young woman who is losing her lover. But of course, with the knowledge of Coward's own life becomes irresistibly autobiographical because it is a deeply bitter song about the impossibility of love. I believe the more you love a man, the more you put your trust, the more you're bound to lose. And that song has survived. So I suppose I would say that the best of Bittersweet has survived and it doesn't necessarily need the frame device, which possibly is embedded in its own era too much to travel safely into ours. I would love to see a production of it someday fully realized so you could get a real sense of what it was. Yeah. The remnants of it that exist are kind of hard to grasp. Yeah. Coward is now incredibly successful. You say he's making 15 million pounds a year estimated at this point. Something like that. And that's in today's money. I have updated that. Yeah. And Jack Wilson said, again, in today's money, that a conservative estimate would be something like quarter of a million dollars a week. I mean, it's running on both sides. I mean, it's the Andrew Lloyd Webber sort of money. I mean, it's big, 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 big money. I think I worked out that Bittersweet in London had been seen by something like 2% of the population. And that's a very large amount. 2% of the British population. Yeah, of the British population. Two in every hundred people had seen Bittersweet live. Astonishing. And money and Jack Wilson start to become an issue at this point as well. 
Yes, and they become an even greater issue in the Second World War. But of course, Coward is in Wilson's thrall, as he was always in the thrall of people he loved. He gives Jack Wilson power of attorney and so on. This causes ructions later, but Jack gained Coward's everlasting fiduciary trust because he invested the money so well that Coward didn't lose a penny in the Wall Street crash at the end of 1929, which happens almost to the day on the first night of Bittersweet in America, which started out in Boston and then came to Broadway, where the police had to hold back the crowds, but where, as Coward said, businessmen were driving their Rolls Royce through the streets trying to sell them, and the newspaper boys were calling out news of the crash and the depression begins and so on. But Wilson doesn't lose a penny, thanks to canny investment. Well, I think that's the perfect dramatic cliffhanger for the end of our story today. Yeah, the Wall Street crash at the beginning of the Depression. Exactly, at the height of the success of Bittersweet. On the next episode of Broadway Nation, Oliver Soden and I return with part three of our conversation regarding his new book, Masquerade, The Lives of Noel Coward. We believe in art. Though we're poles apart From the fools who are thrilled by brothers We like Beardsley And green shark birds Women say we're too Bored to Bill and Pooh We smile wearily It's so drearily Disintegration. Forty boys, naughty boys, dear, 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 swooning with affectation. Our figures sleek and willowy, our lips and carmine eye may worry the majority a bit. But matrons rich and billowy invite us out to dine and revel in our phosphorescent wit. Faded boys, jaded boys, come what may. Is our inspiration, and as we are the reason for the nineties being gay, we all wear a green carnation. Now here's the information about how you too can become a patron of Broadway Nation. A donation of just $7 a month will not only keep Broadway Nation rolling along, it will also provide you with exclusive access to the complete unedited versions of many of the interviews that you hear on this podcast. And all patrons will receive special shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for Broadway Nation. To join, simply go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech That's broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech or click the link in the show notes to this episode. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Pretty boys, pretty boys, yearning for permanent adulation. Haughty boys, naughty boys, every poor Bursting with self-inflation We feel we're rather Grecian As our manners indicate Our sense of moral values isn't strong For ultimate completion We shall really have to wait Until the day of judgment comes on A 
until the day of judgment comes along. Faded boys, jaded boys, each one craves some sort of soul salvation. But when we rise reluctantly but gracefully from our graves, we'll all wear the Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.